Welcome, true crime lovers. I'm your host, Anna, and this is the first episode of Crimeable. So I wanted to start this podcast for everyone out there who's always felt a little weird about how much they like true crime. And if you're like me, then you're probably fascinated by the evidence and psychology behind your favorite serial killers and cold cases. The case I'll be covering today is one that falls into that category. This is the case of the disappearance and murder of Dorothy Jane Scott. Okay, so we're going to jump right in with a little bit of background information. So, Dorothy Jane Scott was born on April 23, 1948 in Anaheim, California to parents Jacob and Vera Scott. In 1976, Dorothy gave birth to her son, Sean, and just a quick note, at the time of her disappearance, Sean was about four years old and she was 32. And also important to note, Sean's father had not been in the picture since birth and lived in Missouri at the time of the disappearance, so he was never really considered a suspect. Dorothy and Sean lived with Dorothy's aunt in Stanton, California, in the late 70s while she was finding work. Dorothy was described by family and friends as self-reliant, a great mother, caring, dependable, organized, and deeply committed to Sean and her Christian faith. She honestly just seems like such an amazing person, and she was deeply loved by her community, and she was gorgeous, and Sean was just the cutest little kid. Oh my goodness. Um, she was also a bit of a homebody, preferring to stay home with her son and was not one to really go out, uh, at night or anything like that. Dorothy's brother once described her as, quote, Dorothy exemplified the word give. She just give and give and give no matter what it cost her, end quote. So Dorothy worked at Anaheim Swinger's psych shop. Okay, this store seems like the best place ever and it's kind of sad. I do not believe they're open anymore. Um, but they sold love beads, lava lamps, and it was just a very 70s store. It had that vibe. Uh, and Dorothy loved working there. She worked in the back and kind of restocked shelves, but it was kind of nice to give her some money so she could get stuff for Sean um, while she was living there. And while she was working, Sean would usually spend time with his grandparents because Vera and Jacob did live so close to her work. So, sometime around the beginning of 1980, Dorothy began receiving phone calls from an unidentified man. She had previously claimed that she did recognize his voice, but was not able to place it. And I personally think that that is so much scarier when you feel like you're like, okay, who could this be? Like, is it this guy? Oh, maybe it was that guy from the grocery store? You know, it's just like a whole other level of fear, I think. Um... So, the man did sometimes compliment Dorothy, but other times angrily shouted at her. Vera, Dorothy's mother, once recounted a call, quote, One day he called and said go outside because he had something for her. She went out there and there was a single dead red rose on the windshield of her car, end quote. One other call that the man stated, quote, Okay, now you're going to come my way and when I get you alone, I will cut you up into bits so no one will ever find you end quote. That's horrifying. I don't even know what I would do after that. Oh my goodness. Uh, The caller would also make a point to tell Dorothy what she was wearing that day or where she'd gone, and this kind of furthered the idea to Dorothy that he was watching her every single day. Okay, and this is where I cannot emphasize this enough, that changing up your routine is so important 
this stops people from doing cre- like creepy stuff like this because if you are unpredictable in what you do, then you have this is a lesser chance of happening. So Dorothy was realizing that this was a big issue and began taking karate classes shortly after receiving these calls and even considered buying a handgun and it was speculated that she didn't because of her young son and his safety. But I mean, I, I definitely see her wanting to get one. Okay. On May 28th, 1980, this is the date of her disappearance. On this particular evening, Dorothy dropped Sean off with her parents because she had to attend a staff meeting for Swinger's psych shop. Conrad Boston, who was a co-worker of Dorothy's, had not been looking too well and had a large red stream on his on his arm, which is like, like a large wound um, or infection almost. And it was later found to be a Black Widow spider bite, and I kind of wonder how the heck that happened, but... Okay, Conrad. So Dorothy urged Conrad to go to a nearby hospital, volunteering to drive him. Pam Head, who was another co-worker, offered to ride with the two. On the way to the hospital, Dorothy stopped at her parents' house to check in with Sean and let them know where she was going. And this was around 10 p.m., um, 10 p.m., 11 p.m.-ish. So while at home, uh, she switched her black scarf that she was wearing for a red one. This doesn't seem like a big thing now, but just hold on to it. It'll be very important later. So at the University of California Medical Center, Conrad got treated for his bite and Pam and Dorothy just chatted in the waiting room. Pam has stated since that the only time Dorothy did leave her sight was as Conrad was released with his prescription and Dorothy went to the restroom and this was roughly around midnight. So Dorothy then went straight from the bathroom to the parking lot to bring her 1973 white Toyota station wagon to the front for Pam and Conrad. Both Pam and Conrad walked out of the ER expecting to see the car waiting for them. They waited patiently until the Toyota came barreling toward them at a high speed. That sounds so scary. Oh my goodness. Okay, so both Pam and Conrad claimed that the headlights had blinded them, making it hard to see who was driving. And obviously at the time they speculated, oh, it was Dorothy. And they just assumed that maybe something had happened with Sean and she had to go. But after hours of waiting, because, I mean, it was 1980, they couldn't do much, Conrad and Pam agreed that she was not coming back for them. Pam called Dorothy's parents and asked if they'd seen her, both claiming they hadn't since she stopped by earlier that night. The UCI police were alerted, but, of course, did nothing at the time because she, she she was an adult. There was nothing suspicious. And, I mean, they couldn't see who was driving the car. I mean, it was just assumed that she was the one who was driving the car. That was, of course, until the Toyota was found at around 4.30 a.m. the next day. Her 1970 Toyota station wagon, just, again, for clarification, was found burning in an alley 10 miles away from the UCI Medical Center. After a quick search, it was evident that neither Dorothy or her supposed captor were found near the site. The UCI police eventually began investigating and instructed Jacob and Vera to not speak to any reporters or news outlets. And this was to stop any false information from circulating. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, it would, they, the, the news is prone to making situations a lot bigger and a lot worse a lot sooner than they should. Although, about a week later, Vera did receive a phone call from an un- unidentified man. And this is just really sad. Uh, But it says, quote, are you related to Dorothy Scott? And Vera replied, yes. And then the voice said, I've got her, end quote. Then the caller abruptly hung up the phone. And that, I mean, that's just, 
that's just so awful when you're a grieving mother or a grieving grieving father to get a phone call like that because it is possible that that was the perpetrator, but it also has happened where people find it funny to contact victims' families, and it's just it's just so awful. Um, but after not coming up with any leads, Vera and Jacob did end up deciding to run a story uh, in the Santa Ana Register about Dorothy's disappearance. So the editor of the Santa Ana Register, wow, that's kind of hard to say, Pat Riley, received a phone call the same day the story came out, and an unidentified male voice stated, quote, I killed her. I killed Dorothy Scott. She was my love. I caught her cheating with another man. She denied having someone else. I killed her, end quote. Okay, first off, that is so scary to be someone who is not, like, you, I mean, sure, the editor is somewhat related to the case, but that is just such a scary phone call to receive. And it is also important to no- note that Dorothy was not dating anyone at the time and had not been in a rel- romantic relationship with one with anyone any time since then. Uh, and despite that inaccurate info, the caller did give some info that only Dorothy's captor would know because it was withheld from the public at the time. Such as, she had been wearing a red scarf. And again, we had talked about she changed from her black scarf to a red scarf. Uh, I mean, only the perpetrator would know this. And the reasoning she was at the UCI, they knew why she was there. And and they also knew that Conrad had a spider bite. And that they also claimed that Dorothy had called them from the UCI. Although this part is sort of unlikely based off of Pam's testimony of never seeing Dorothy use the payphone, but only go to the restroom. So, as I previously stated, Sean's father was questioned, but due to his airtight alibi and having been in Missouri at the time, he was easily ruled out. Co-workers at the psych shop were also questioned, but ruled out as well, and it was a possibility of a stalker that had been a customer at the store, but this was also unlikely because I said before that Dorothy hardly interacted with the customers because she worked in the back tending to shelves and restocking. So, sadly, oh, this is just so upsetting. During this time, Vera did continue receiving phone calls from the unidentified voice every single Wednesday for the next four years. Like, I I cannot even imagine. I mean, at that point, it's a routine. You are, you are getting these awful messages, and it's a routine. It's just, that is just so horrible. Um, but there was one day that Jacob, Dorothy's father, did pick up the phone and after that, the call stopped, which I wonder, it, it makes me speculate if if the caller was afraid of a male, um, another male in- answering, and they only thought, well, I can only intimidate a female. I really, I really don't know. Uh, but that, that has always been kind of an interesting idea for speculation. But while the phone calls were being received, the police did try multiple times to trace them. But, of course, whoever was making the calls never stayed on the line long enough for them to be traced. So, finally, four years after her disappearance, on August 6, 1984, a construction worker found skeletal remains while working on Santa Ana Canyon Road in Anaheim. And this is just a weird coincidence. Maybe not even a coincidence, but something that happened that I don't really... I have not found anything that's correlating the two, but there were remains of a dog 
next to these human remains, and it's never been linked in any way, but it's just kind of odd. So the remains that were found were a skull, pelvis, arm, and both thighs. Uh, these remains were charred, and this leads investigators to believe that the perpetrator had burned Dorothy's body at some point to either hide evidence or make her harder to identify. These remains were sadly identified a week later as Dorothy's. The identifying factors were a turquoise ring and a watch, which were discovered with the remains, and Vera, Dorothy's mother, had to confirm that they were hers. Also, due to the state that the body was in, well, I mean, it really, at that point, it really wasn't a body, it was just the skeletal remains, the coroner could not identify a cause of death. I just think that is so, so sad. She, she had been missing for four years, and to find her and not even know what happened is, is almost worse than knowing what happened, because then it's the speculation, and the human brain is so powerful and to think that her parents had to live the rest of their life not knowing what happened to their daughter and not knowing what pain she went through is just unimaginable. And even after Dorothy's remains were found, and it was determined that she was in fact murdered, Vera did still receive some taunting phone calls, although it is a bit unclear if this was the original unidentified caller from when Dorothy was receiving the calls, but still does not make them any less scary. So one call stated, quote, is Dorothy home? And sometimes they would tell her, well, I've got her, and then just hang up. The authorities do believe, however, that the original unidentified caller is very much so responsible for Dorothy's death. Although the calls following, if if it is just some sick joke to somebody to call up a member of a grieving family for a daughter who was, one, missing for four years, and then her skeletal remains were found, and there is no cause of death, is just, it's just, I'm just beside myself to think that anyone would do that. It's just absolutely awful. And still to this day, it has been 40 years since Dorothy was murdered, and the case is still very much so open. Although there have been a couple of leads here and there, but none that were of supreme importance. And there are a couple different cases that are similar to Dorothy's where a criminal has been caught, but they have never been officially linked to Dorothy's case. And sadly, Jacob and Vera both passed away. Jacob passed away in 1994 and Vera passed in 2002 without ever learning what happened to their daughter. And it was a little unclear, but I did find in a couple sources that Dorothy's son, Sean, is still an advocate for his mother, but otherwise seems pretty quiet, which is very understandable. In, in all, I just think that it is so sad that at the time there was just not enough technology and, and the evidence had been so well hidden and so well taken care of by the perpetrator that that the police could not come up with any solid leads on what was exactly happening. And it always makes me think of what if the car hadn't been burned and if the car had just been found and then they could take the fingerprints into evidence and maybe at the time they couldn't have done anything with them. But now with it being, you know, 2021, we could have definitely done something. And even by the late 90s, they could have 
started at least um, matching fingerprints if maybe the perpetrator had been in jail before or was currently in jail, then they could have gotten her justice so much sooner. And it's just kind of crazy to think that she is still an open case and no one has been charged with her murder. Although this case is a bit of a downer and a bit short due to the lack of evidence, I had such a blast researching and I really hope you enjoyed listening. Thank you again for listening and make sure you go follow Crimeable on Instagram at crimeable.podcast so that you can look at case photos and recommend cases for me to cover. Until next time, true crime lovers.